Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. In the Garden State Parkway murders, true crime writer and attorney Christian Barth dives into the harrowing story of the unsolved murders of Elizabeth Perry and Susan Davis. College friends, the two women, were brutally knifed to death and their bodies left off the parkway in the early hours of May 30, 1969. Among the numerous suspects Barth identifies are infamous serial killers Ted Bundy and Gerald Eugene Stano who were living within an hour's drive from where the murder scene at the time they occurred. The killers also resided next to one another on Florida's death row and indirectly confessed to the double homicide. A culmination of more than nine years of research, Barth's book is compiled from multiple sources, including interviews with retired New Jersey State Police detectives, law enforcement officials from other jurisdictions, federal agents, possible witnesses, victim family members, as well as information gathered from FBI case files, letters, journals, libraries, newspaper articles, and university archives. In scintillating detail, Barth presents the case, including previously undisclosed information surrounding these brutal murders, as well as an examination of recent technological advances in crime scene analysis and FBI serial killer profiling that could help identify the killer. When all is said and done, the reader is asked to consider, why hasn't this cold case been solved? The book that we're featuring this evening is The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, with my special guest, attorney and author, Christian Barth. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Christian Barth. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, an incredible case. Let's um, get to right away. Um, tell us a little bit about your interest in this case and how you came about to be the author. And in that, tell us the about your book, The Origins of Infamy. Okay, so uh, back it goes back to a childhood memory of, back in about, I'd say I was 12, 13, maybe 14. As a boy, even leading up to that point, we had always traveled to the Jersey Shore. Um, we had uh, relatives down there, uh, and we used to vacation every summer for about two weeks in a town called Stone Harbor, which is in uh, Cape May County. Uh, to get to Stone Harbor, you would travel, obviously, down the Garden State Parkway. On one of these trips north, uh, on the parkway, or on several of these trips north, I would always, as a kid, look out into the woods as we drive past them. I grew up in a town called Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is strictly suburban, uh, you know, streetlights, neighborhoods, things along those lines. There really weren't any woods. 
So on these trips north, I would always look into the woods, and I was interrupted uh, from one of these reveries at one time from my mother uh, saying to my father, who was driving, I was in the back seat. She said they never found out who killed those girls, did they? And it was just fascinating to me. Perhaps it was the, the mention of this case in the conjunction of me looking outside at the woods, and I might, you know, my ears perked up, and I said, what case? And I'd uh, you know, learned the briefest of details, and I remember my father saying, yeah, for a while they had a trailer in the woods because the, the killer always returned to the scene of the crime. Now, that part of it being in the woods wasn't an accurate recollection of it, but nevertheless, that memory just stayed with me for a few minutes. Um, got buried in my subconscious until 1993 when I had read on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer a story by writer Larry Kelly that Ted Bundy, had been in the area, and his biographer, a guy named um, Mr. Larson, uh, had, in, in fact, uh, written The Deliberate Stranger, which became the movie starring Mark Harmon. He was right. of the opinion that Ted Bundy was in the area at the time and, uh, you know, and had, in fact, confessed to the murders based upon several marks he had made to a psychologist named Art Norman in 1986 while on death row. And later on the eve of, his, uh, eve of his execution, excuse me, to Dr. Dorothy Lewis. So uh, when about year 2000, or 2001, I had gotten in my mind to become a writer and uh, had taken a class in, at Rutgers University. Uh, and a short story was, was, a, was a requirement. And I didn't have an idea. And for some reason, it just came into my head, wow, that was an interesting story. So I fictionalized the story into a short story that was published soon thereafter. I think it was called The Smiling Knife, and it was a, a, a loosely based interpretation of the story. And from there, I said, well, you know what? I'm really into this fiction writing. I was really, really discovering it, and writers that influenced me, like William Styron and, and, and guys like that, and I just decided to write a book fictionalizing the, the, uh, the Parkway Murders, told entirely from Ted Bundy's perspective, beginning in death row and then going back his time in Seattle. Obviously, all this taking place in 1969, uh, leading up to the murders. Uh, I, you know, he was, Bundy was in New York City. Uh, he had lived in Philadelphia in the spring of 69, um, staying with an aunt. So I, I, I really uh, coalesced all these, these uh, this research that I did uh, into a book called The Origins of Infamy. I went to New York City. Uh, to the public library, went their archives, just got a real feel for, you know, the pornography and those things that Bundy attributed, attributed as influences, um, you know, in his motive to kill. I believe he called it, you know, the entity that was formed in New York City. Um, that, of course, was referenced later by him not only to Hugh uh, Ainsworth uh, and Steve Michaud in conversations with a killer, um, but right. at latter times as well. So these are the, in my say latter times, he had mentioned this to Dr. Dorothy Lewis and Art Norman in discussing, um, you know, after he went to New York City, he went to the Jersey Shore. He never mentioned the Jersey Shore component to Ainsworth or Michaud. So that was fascinating, but he did uh, mention it to these two other psychologists. So that's, that's how it began. And I just, uh, I was just fascinated by the case from that point forward. Um, and that's what gave rise to the, to the origins of infamy. Now, with this book, you talk about uh, you, the setting is Ocean City. So tell us about Ocean City 
and uh, tell us about Susan Margaret Davis and Elizabeth Perry. Okay, so Ocean City began, its beginnings were in the late 1800s. A trio of Methodist ministers had founded it, um, as they call it, like a seaside oasis, a very Christian, virtuous, virtuous place. Um, there is no drinking there. The blue laws have been in effect since its founding. Um, there's a tabernacle there. It's always had a very Methodist influence. Uh, toward the late 1960s, the, the, the composite had started to change uh, in, a, in a not so great way. You had, it's funny what the uh, writers of the Ocean City Sentinel, uh, the newspaper down there, uh, and, and the other papers had called, uh, quote unquote, the undesirable element, which I thought was a funny way of looking at it, started to go there. Um, and they would stay at the houses, the young people, the college kids, uh, and they would leave from there and go to the bars at Summers Point, um, which is right across the bridge, which is sort of the bacchanalia of of, of the Jersey Shore. Then you had bars like Tony Marks, Bay Shores, uh, and whatnot uh, that were there. Actually, Tony Marks uh, is where, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, movie, it's a cult classic, Eddie and the Cruisers with Tom Berenger. It was filmed there before it was torn Mm -hmm. down. So you had that real distinct difference between the two places. So Susan and Elizabeth uh, were both 19, and they had uh, been just wanted to graduate from Monticello College, which is a girls' school in Illinois, no longer um, there. Um, And they were friends, and they decided to take a trip down to the Jersey Shore, and they wound up staying at one of the many rooming houses that were down there at the time. Uh, affordable rooming houses for kids who would stay and go to the beach and again go to summer's point at night so they were there for three days they stayed at a rooming house um susan by the way was from pennsylvania harrisburg pennsylvania and elizabeth was from minnesota so they went and became friends at monticello went to the jersey shore stayed there and by all accounts you know they didn't meet a lot of people they were sun tanning these weren't real party girls so to speak they're very nice very nice girls from very fine families they had uh, gone there, stayed for three days, and uh, on the morning of May 30th at about 4.30 a.m., they had gotten up to leave, spoke with their landlord, an elderly gentleman named Walter Seiden, told him they were leaving, um, and they took off. He saw them you know, leaving their car. Susan was driving a 1966 Marina Blue uh, Chevrolet convertible. They left there, and then they were seen at the Summers Point Diner about, again, a mile and a half away over the bridge in Summers Point. Now, to understand the, the, the thing with Summers Point Diner, all these bars that I referenced earlier would get out at 2.30 in the morning. There were two all-night bars as well that would feed into every, every kid after the bars closed would just stagger on over to uh, the Summers Point Diner, which is the only place open all night back then, 24-7. I talked to Mr. McGill, the owner of the establishment back then. He said literally there was a standing line there all day long, all night long, with right. kids going in. Right. So that, that's, that's how they wound up being in, in um, Susan and Elizabeth uh, wound up getting to the point of from there, of course, they, they drove off and, and the murders occurred about two miles away. Now, they, they are expected by, Susan is expected by the parents, uh, Wesley Davis Sr. and his wife Marjorie, 
So this you say that there's this is uh tell us how how long this this ride is supposed to be and when do the parents uh get a sense of uh, urgency and panic and what do they do as a result. Okay, so they uh with, with respect to the parents, they were Susan and Elizabeth um were going that the plan was after they left the boarding house in Ocean City, they were going to go to directly home to Susan's parents' house in, in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania specifically, which is a suburb of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the state capital. And they were supposed to join um, Susan's parents for a trip down to Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, to see Susan's older brother graduate that weekend. So by mid-morning, when the kids didn't appear, um, you know, at the house, immediately Mr. Davis started to be real concerned because it just wasn't like Susan. Uh, she wasn't flighty. She always told them where she was going to be. And by about noon, they still hadn't heard anything. And as the day went on, they grew more and more concerned because they hadn't heard anything. Uh, they began contacting friends who hadn't heard from the two girls. They contacted Elizabeth's parents. No one heard anything. And by the next day, they started to get a little more panicky, and Mr. Davis uh, went ahead and contacted a man who was then the uh, uh, attorney general of the state of Pennsylvania, um, who I interviewed in the book, and Mr. Senate, and Mr. Senate said, look, I'll, I'll try to do what I, what I can. Um, but at this point, they were really just, because in the late 1960s and early 1970s, missing persons uh, reports were rather common. Kids were both basically would, would go off for a few days, and, and there wasn't really no alarm bells went off. But, but as time went on, then over that weekend, uh, it, it became very apparent that something something had gone wrong. In fact, both both fathers had said instinctively, instinctively uh, something had gone wrong. So they wound up uh, renting a helicopter and, and done a sweep over the woods to see if they could find any signs of wreckage. So that's. Uh, how the Davis, Mr. Davis, um, you know, how some of the investigation began into their um, uh, into their disappearance. You, meanwhile, talk about two New Jersey State troopers that are assigned early morning patrol in the southern corner of uh, Parkway on Memorial Day weekend, 1969. Uh, this is uh, troopers James Dunbar. He's 25 year, 24 years old, and uh, Later, John Stair. Um, tell us about this patrol uh, on Memorial Day weekend. Okay, so, so Trooper uh, Dunbar and Troopers Dunbar and Stir were both uh, stationed out of the Avalon, New Jersey State Police Barracks. Um, their route was a 24-mile loop that started there, went down along the parkway, and back. So. Uh, Mr. Dunbar um, had gone and, and you know, had the first ship early in the morning and, and said he didn't see anything. The next person was Trooper Stir. Trooper Stir went along and saw the girl's car abandoned on the side of the road, or what he didn't know was that their car at that time was actually Susan's convertible. He pulled over. It was near mile marker 31.9 uh, on the parkway, mile post 31.9. He pulled over, and he didn't see anything that would suggest that there was any foul play. Susan's uh, straw purse was located uh, downstairs. 
I'm so not down, downstairs. In in the uh, in the car itself, there was no indication again that the car had skidded off the side of the road. Any mechanical breakdown? He presumed it was abandoned. He then called in uh, to both. I guess it was because it was a Pennsylvania tag. He called into the Pennsylvania Division of Motor Vehicles, reported the tag number, and the person there mistakenly relayed back that it belonged to a, another person. So he presumed it was abandoned. He had no idea at the point at that point, Dan, that in fact the fathers, um, you know, had there, there was these missing girls. So he went ahead and um, had it towed. The place called Blazers Garage, no longer in existence. They came along and they uh, had the car towed, and it remained there at this guy's garage, Blazers Garage in Northfield, not too far away for three days. And at this point, the parents had done the helicopter and it was, you know, in the newspapers, the New York times had reported that these, these two girls were missing. So when, uh, Trooper Stirk was back from a fishing vacation that weekend, he sees, you know, the teletypes, the missing persons, and he puts two and two together. And that's when he says, Oh, you know, I, I went over there and, and, and it was these girls. In fact, who it was, and that's when the investigation, that's when the investigation began, but it was, it was, I don't want to say it was an oversight, but I don't know if there was anything really Trooper Stir could have done, um, but you know, maybe he should have investigated into the woods right there. Um, but do we know that the girls were dead at the time that he came by? The, the coroner had indicated that uh, the times of death was about 45 minutes within the time they had left the diner, which was about 6 a.m., give or take. And he drove by and saw the car at about 8 a.m., so the crime would have taken point at that place. But that's, that's how they initially discovered uh, Susan's car on the side of the road. Now, once they do that, what's the, they undertake a search, and what do they find in that search? Okay, so uh, they immediately dispatched uh, members of the Highway Authority, the Garden State Parkway, uh, which is under the aegis of the New Jersey I think, Turnpike Authority, and a bunch of local workers on hands and knees did a grid search. It wasn't, they, literally 15 minutes into the search, a guy named Elwood Fonts uh, literally stumbled across the bodies. They were covered in leaves. Um, one of the women had been found um, completely nude. The other was dressed except for her shoes. And this is where they, um, this is, this is essentially how they, how they found the bodies. And as far as, you know, what was found uh, there, there was no evidence really that it had taken place anywhere other than there. In other words, with the bodies dumped, et cetera, et cetera, they simply found them there and they were concealed and obviously had been, been stabbed to death. So, in terms of uh, motive for this crime and evidence of robbery, what's the situation there that police find? Fascinating. There, there was no evidence of robbery. Um, Susan's um, uh, purse, again, was left in the car. Elizabeth's was found nearby her, uh, and there were a few dollar bills in there. Uh, I had found, uh, again, through research, that... Uh, Elizabeth actually had on her hands uh, jewelry, um, some rather expensive uh, heirlooms containing diamonds and so forth and, and, and charm bracelets. So you'd think if the person's motive was robbery, why wouldn't they have taken those things? But 
they weren't. They, they were left there. Um, so I, as far as motive, it's just difficult to discern from that uh, what his motive was uh, based upon him not, not taking anything and merely killing him, not robbing them, and basically fleeing the scene. What about the three-day uh, delay in basically being able to find those bodies? What did it do in terms of decomposition, in terms of uh, the coroner's um, motive or mode of death, basically? Well, well, there, there, well, the thing was, I, I had spoken with a retired detective named John Divill. John had been to the crime scene. Uh, he didn't have jurisdiction. Jurisdiction resided with the New Jersey State Police uh, because it was found alongside the parkway. And, and John had indicated to me that there was, just because it was a very hot weekend, it was really an accelerated rate of decomposition um, with the bodies. So they were never able, because of that, um, to find whether or not either of the girls had been sexually assaulted. Uh, so, you know, that, that certainly, that, that was for the three-day lag really contributed um, to sort of the mystery as to what exactly happened at the scene. So, the also um, through their analysis and investigation, they also saw that the nothing indicated that the vehicle had been forced off the road. And the gas tank was three quarter full, and the battery was charged. Um, they hadn't pulled over due to a technical problem. In That's terms correct. of uh, in terms of any signs of struggle. What did it seem like, and what was their early hypothesis in terms of how they came to their demise on that roadside? Well, that, that, that's that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, Dan. We just don't know because there were no signs. I mean, there was the initially police considered, well, you know, was it a hitchhiker that they had that pulled them over? Um, you know, was the car abandoned? Obviously, the, the police determined that there was no mechanical problems that hadn't run out of gas. So we really don't know what exactly caused them to pull over in the first place, nor do we know what caused this person um, to go ahead and, and, and kill them in the manner that they did at that time of the day. Now, sunrise, according to my research, was at 529 a.m., so uh, what you have to recognize, because this occurred at, at peak sunlight, you know, not peak sunlight hours, but when there was light at that time of the day, that sort of adds to the whole mystery of it. Why would a person, if in fact they were pulled over to the side of the road, why would he do this in, in pure daylight and, and commit this act so close to the side of the road with, with these people? And it's presumably the guy was a stranger. There were no reports that they had met anyone, um, you know, anyone that was seen, um, you know, with whom they may have had some sort of conflict. There was nothing like that. So all these factors contribute to the, to, to the mystery um, uh, of the case and, and fascination that I had with it. This case, uh, as you write, this makes national attention. You got the likes of Walter Conkright uh, reporting on CBS Evening News. Uh, so this is big. Um, how do the state police proceed with this investigation? Well, uh, they initially appoint, uh, obviously, several detectives. They decide that the Abseekin State Police Barracks, um, which has 
since that time shut down and become an office uh, building of sorts. That's going to be the nerve center. The troop uh, headquarters for the uh, for this troop was in Hamilton, not too far from the murder uh, location as well. But because a lot of the troopers lived near Absecon, and that's where it took place, that was decided to be the nerve center. And what they did was completely dismantle, got the interior of the place and put in bunks and so forth. And that's where everyone reported to. And it became a 24-7 investigation in the first days. The state police had interviewed, you know, hundreds of hundreds. This grew to, you know, a few thousand of every young man. They could, they worked around the clock to find out uh, anything they could. They visited the bars, Summers Point. They interviewed people that had stayed at the boarding house, uh, with the girls. They, they did everything they possibly could to try to, uh, to find out who did this. But you know, they, they, it always comes back to that three-day lag um, between the time of uh, the discovery of their bodies and when they had broken down on the side of the road, which really contributed to the delay and, and the problems with the investigation by the time the police learned and finding anything. Tell us about Albert Hickey, Jr., and what does he have to say, the security guard? Okay, Albert Hickey uh, was a part-time security guard uh, with the Summers uh, Point Police Department. Back then, because of the number of young people that were there that I discussed earlier, the proximity to the Bay Avenue bars like Tony Marts and Bay Shores and the Anchorage Tavern and the From Dunes Till Dawn, um, which was another place out in Longport. Because of that, they had to hire all these part-time security guards. So Albert Hickey was one of them. Albert Hickey was working at the diner, and he said that on that morning, uh, around the time of the murders, he saw a blue convertible stop at the circle and pick up a hitchhiker. He said was about five foot nine and was carrying a what looked like a flight bag. Apparently, a long time ago, TWA used to give you a flight bag. Uh, as whatever for whatever reasons when when you took a flight and he said that's what it reminded him of sort of a satchel he was wearing a yellow turtleneck or shirt got into the car and and sped uh you know left thereafter i did interview albert at length he was also in addition to being a part-time security he was an associated press photographer and he was actually at the um I think it was an Epsican and, and covering the matter for the Associated Press when he had learned um, of the lag in time or something along those lines. But he, he then told the police what, what he had remembered um, of what happened. And he was actually brought in to be questioned as well as, as to what he knew. But he was the first person, Albert, to identify a, uh, uh, a person who appeared to be getting into a car the two girls that fit the description of Susan and Elizabeth, and he identified the person as wearing a yellow shirt. From that point forward, the media just really attached themselves to, the fa- to his testimony and, and what he saw. And, and from that point forward, they began their search for anyone who was wearing a, uh, a yellow shirt. So that, that was Albert's uh, real contribution to it early on. What did police find in their search uh, around the crime scene, and what did they hold back from the media and the public in terms of information regarding that evidence? Uh, they, what they found at the crime scene was a watch. That was the most important thing, a watch. It was 
called a Belfort Sea Diver, which was a model manufactured by the Bentroos Company out of Ridgefield, Connecticut. It was a diver's watch. Um, they initially held back the existence of this dive watch from the newspapers. It was that and Susan's sunglasses, and and, and tried to find out, uh, you know, who, um, you know, if they could find anyone wearing a dive watch. In fact, that that comprised a lot of the questioning as to, you know, the, the people they didn't put in the paper yet at this point. You know, who had the dive watch? Was anyone wearing a watch? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another thing they had withheld was. Um, the uh, the jewelry um, that Elizabeth had been wearing, and there was another uh, you know method of restraint that they had. Um, you'd really probably keep that for the book, the readers of the book that they had withheld as well, which obviously I indicate uh, so forth in the book um, um, that was was found as well, um, and that they had held back uh, from the press. The reason they do these things. Uh, oftentimes, read the holdbacks is because when once it gets out into the papers um, that there are these murders, you get a lot of publicity seekers and you know, psychologically unbalanced individuals who will go to police and, and give false confessions, and they use these holdbacks um, to sort of ferret out um, the truth tellers from the people that are, are seeking publicity and want to be known known as a killer and so forth. It's pretty pretty twisted, but that's why. Sure. Of course, they go through and talk to the landlord. They talk to boarders at this um, place on the Ocean City. They talk to the the boys came forward that had that had uh, the diner lunch with the or the breakfast with the with the girls. All of these people came forward were cooperative. Um, the state police really liked uh, polygraphing, and they did investigate and ask for polygraphs from numerous people in this investigation, didn't they? That's correct. Uh, everyone you know, who, who willingly submitted to a polygraph, you know, that, that they would. And I actually got a call from a guy who was a, a college professor <laughs> um, nowadays, and he said, you know, just because he was wearing a watch, someone called the police and said he had this watch. They showed up. Uh, I think he was at an ROTC uh, gathering of sorts, and the police literally showed up and, and pulled him out of the line and, you know, made him take the test and so forth. So they didn't mess around back then. They would show up, and they were, because of the intense pressure to find these girls and the time component, they would show up and, and just interview several, several, uh, several young men, as I said, into the thousands to try to find out if they knew anything about the case. Now, you write that the state police really only have this description from Hickey, this five foot nine shaggy hair, shaggy hair, yellow top, may have been wearing a diver wristwatch because they did release that eventually, didn't they? That public information became public? Yes. Yes. And, uh, and, but he was uncertain of the color of the convertible. Um, what else was, what, what, what other information were the police? Uh, conflicted with in terms of timeline for this story here for them to be certain about Albert Hickey's testimony. Well, there were, there were some, some, uh, a few articles, a few, I should say, say, witnesses, but some people did come forth after what was publicly disclosed about Hickey's account and said there, there was another car, at the time, um, 
basically, whatever Albert said he saw, the police said there may have been another convertible uh, at the same time. Essentially, although they obviously gave great weight to what he said, they were able to exclude, uh, in their opinion, what they saw, at least at the time, as being the same convertible driven by Susan Elizabeth um, due to uh, the timeline. I think he said he saw it at around 4.30, um, but they were seen eating at the diner uh, at about 5.30, so the, the time uh, uh, didn't really jive with, with what he had seen. But the yellow uh, shirt would obviously, as you know, come you know, come to fruition as a substantial piece of evidence later on uh, down the road as far as identifying someone else. You talk about the state police stopping people. They think that um, that frequently use the parkway, see if they've seen anything, and they stopped eight people who said they saw the light blue convertible near the scene at 6.30. One witness said another car model, and the police seemed to believe this account. What was this vehicle, and what was its color, and what do they think, what was its significance to this story? Okay, so following Albert Hickey's uh, account. Uh, what next became apparent is that there were a number of witnesses that did drive by and saw uh, Susan's abandoned convertible on the side of the road around, you know, within a, a few hours span of the time of the murders. They also mentioned seeing uh, what was first reported as a maroon Mustang, which was corrected later on to reflect it was actually a tan Mustang parked. Uh, I want to get this about a hundred yards, give or take, um, you know, behind Susan's convertible. And uh, that was the car. So that again, once this became uh, public, you know, that there's a maroon convertible, uh, three boys came down there from Pennsylvania. They actually traveled down to Absecon, Absecon where the barracks was. And, and one of the boys voluntarily gave a statement with his father and said, you know, it was us. We were actually driving north from Wildwood, had run out of gas, and decided to park on the side of the road and go to sleep for a few hours. And then, you know, they would. the plan was they would wake up and, and go and get gas or hitchhike, whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, I actually, uh, what, what's fascinating is when they woke up, they saw the car there. But they said that when they originally pulled over the side of the road, Susan and Elizabeth's car wasn't there. And it was determined that the girls were murdered uh, at the time these three young men were sleeping, which I found just incredible because how did two girls get violently murdered about 50 yards away in the woods from where these boys were? without hearing anything. I mean, several years ago, a friend of mine and I decided to conduct a test and I, uh, he was standing about a hundred yards away. And I said, you know, just, just scream for me and tell me if you can hear this. And I did granted I hadn't been drinking at the time. Um, but it just, you know, you think about the times in your youth when you had had a few too many beers and you, you know, fallen asleep, whatever the case may be, you think there's something in, in your, in your, uh, in your makeup that alerts you for a sixth sense, something so tragic as that. But that had always amazed me and does so to this day, how those three guys were able to sleep through this 
And that lends itself, of course, to uh, various theories uh, as to how these girls were brought into the woods in the first place. You know, where they was a gun raised upon them. Obviously, they didn't scream initially. Um, they would have gone in. Um, one of the uh, detectives that I spoke with years later said he was of the opinion that they were, and he used the term compliant um, in, in going into the woods. And obviously, you know, and I, and I researched other things, Dan, you know, about you know, does a person get, can he, he be frozen, he or she be frozen into submission, uh, be so scared that you can't right. scream. And that mm-hmm. is, that, that's a condition that, that is definitely, you know, that, that can happen. And maybe that's what happened here, but it's always struck me as odd that these three boys didn't hear anything. However, the other two boys were interviewed and the one submitted to a second round of questioning, the one that initially went down from Pennsylvania to the Absecon station, all three of them passed lie detector tests, aren't considered suspects and were released. Now, you talk about the trooper finally finding a yellow turtleneck. There wasn't a trooper that found it. I, it was uh, maybe one of the searchers had found a yellow turtleneck and a girdle. <laughs> I haven't heard that term in, yeah. in, in forever. And yeah. they were brought, yeah, they were brought to the station. It was analyzed and, and it was determined not to, you know, not to be connected to it. Sort of thing. The area where these, where these girls were found is quite interesting. It's known uh, to be right by what's called the cove. Um, so on, on the surface, as you're driving past it, it's very rural, the particular section. Okay, there, there are no homes back. There are now, way back, but there weren't at the time. It was adjacent to a pig farm. So, um, you know, there, were, there was called a trysting place as well. A lot of kids from local mainland high school um, would party there, and nearby was a beach along the Patcon Creek called the Cove where, where locals would, would party. So it was definitely an area that was known to locals, but there weren't any entrances along the side of the road, like trail maps or anything like that. It wasn't a public park. So um, there were people that had been back there, but as far as that turtleneck is concerned, yeah, they did initially find that. And in doing so and in testing that, obviously didn't discount Albert Hickey's theory, which lends itself to the fact that they were taking anything um, and considering at that point, because it had so little evidence. You, for the writer, have the well, the fact of Susan's funeral, and very dramatic in that uh, uh, witness says that we could never re- forget the mother screaming at the front of the church, um, Davis family. So, also after this, shortly after this, or somewhat after this, the Philadelphia Police Department. Uh, received a tip from a store clerk in a clothing store. What does this clerk say he overheard and saw, and what did the police do? So the clerk uh, in a clothing store on 14th Street north of Market. You have to understand about this area. It's long since been gentrified. It was sort of uh, an interesting one area. I wouldn't want to say it was seedy. It was very funky, sort of a Greenwich Village late 60s feel to it. 
couple right. of they called it a red light district, but it wasn't it wasn't like Times Square, in other words. So the, the these two women at this point, you have to remember, this is five days after um, the bodies were, were found, and it's in in, in just the really the. Uh, the heady days of the investigation. So these two girls are in a clothing store um, on Market Street, and they say that they overhear, or they're talking to some guy who comes in there wearing a yellow t-shirt, a yellow uh, shirt, who uh, is wearing a yellow turtleneck. Now the clerk of the store overhears the man saying to them, you know, words to the effect of, "I was down, oh yeah, I was down there, down at the uh, beach when that happened." I guess the girls were talking about the Ocean City, the case, the murders, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the clerk overhearing this remembers that he had read in the paper of Albert Hickey's account of seeing allegedly um, a guy in a yellow turtleneck getting into the car with the flight bag with two girls driving convertible on the morning of the murders. He contacts the Philadelphia Police Department, who thereafter um, proceed to um, – find uh, this particular, what they called as 18-year-old hippie type uh, at the um, bus station nearby and, and brought him in for a round of questioning. What was uh, Thomas's history and, uh, and what happens in the polygraph? According well, to their the polygraph, uh, according to... Um, Again, they reference him as the quote-unquote 18-year-old hippie type. The polygraph was uh, conducted by the Philadelphia Police Department, I guess their, their homicide department. They had him in there without a lawyer for about a couple of hours, and they, according to the newspaper and an unpublished memo that I had discovered, he gave what they called quote-unquote fuzzy answers. In other words, my understanding of that, that they weren't able to really discern that he was telling the truth, but nor could they say he had any knowledge. There's always been a vast gray area as to you know, what those tests revealed, but obviously there was enough there in their interpretation to immediately contact. I guess they would have done it anyway because they didn't have jurisdiction, uh, the New Jersey State Police. So at about midnight, um, Detective George Dix, who I interviewed several times, uh, he uh, got a call while he was eating dinner at his home in Atlantic County, New Jersey, from I think it was Mario Patera, who was the captain of the state police at the time, saying, "Look, you got to get over um, uh, to um, you know Philadelphia. We may, we may have the guy." And I, I want to correct what I just said. He may have been. I think he was either at home or he was at the Turnersville, New Jersey barracks interviewing uh, the three boys found in the tan Mustang. It was, I think, right after them when he, did, he went over. They actually drove Mario Patera's car. He and um, Mr. Patterson, Detective Patterson, went over and met with the 18-year-old suspect, um, and he consented to be interviewed, and it went all night long. All night long, it was just a crazy, crazy you know time that uh, they interviewed him at length um, and about and they just obviously were they were really pushing to get if they're able to he was obviously did he know that at the time free to leave any time, but he did not um he he chose to you know agree to the questioning and 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 so forth and and the fascinating aspect of this is. 
he was, I guess there was a 24-hour, a 12-hour hold, but under uh, Pennsylvania law, you either had to charge a suspector or let him go. So there was another detective there named Donald Patterson who coincidentally, he was the head of the Philadelphia Major Crimes Unit at the time. He later became Pennsylvania Inspector General. He approached the other Donald Patterson. By the way, the uh, Philadelphia Donald Patterson, excuse me, was African-American, and uh, Mr. Patterson of the New Jersey State Police was, was Caucasian. So um, Detective Patterson and George Dix were informed by this um, this Mr. Patterson, look, you have to let these guys go or let, let this kid go or charge him. And they're outside in front of the barracks, and uh, Mr. Patterson was saying he actually had an argument with Dix because Dix was convinced, look, you know, we got to keep this going. And, and Patterson's like, look, we have nothing on this kid. You know, I'm, I'm not buying it, but this kid knows anything about the case. So they say he's free to go, but they ask him, look, would you be willing to accompany us down to New Jersey? Um, you know, to, to submit to another lie detector test and more questioning. And he agrees. So yeah. he gets into a car with these two, and they're driving across the, it was either the Delaware, I think it was the Ben Franklin Bridge to go into um, New Jersey and then proceed from there to a barracks. And they don't have the money to get over the bridge. It's like a 50 cent uh, charge to whatever it was. So the kid, the 18 year old, proceeds to take 50 cents out of his pocket <laughs> and, gives, and gives them the money to do it. So they then yeah. go from thereafter to the, the Berlin State Barracks, um, which is another road station, um, and, um, you know, proceed to question him further, et cetera, et cetera. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second, Christian, to talk about our sponsor, with his, which is Rothy's. Rothy's come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns, and they're available in a range of styles like sneakers, loafers, points, and more. They launch new colors and patterns every few weeks, and they sell out constantly. Rothy's has quickly grown to the a most-loved, gotta-have-them brand. It's no surprise they have over 1,000 nearly perfect reviews. They're stylish, sustainable, comfortable, washable, really all in one pair of shoes. They're the perfect flats for life on the go. My wife, Lisa, ordered a pair of the Maritime Navy points. She remarked how comfortable they were, and she wore them for hours, and how elegant they looked, I agree, and she was very impressed with her Rossi's. And comfort's a big thing with her. Another major bonus with Rothy's is they're fully machine washable. Every time they need a refresh, you can simply toss them in the washing machine. It's like getting a fresh pair every laundry day. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash truemurder. Go to rothys.com slash truemurder to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash truemurder today. Now we have this Mark Thomas, and as you write, despite one of the officers, one of the detectives thinking that they got their man, that they were close to a, to a confession, this uh, Mark Thomas uh, has serious mental issues and problems. Um, 
Tell us how police finally get in touch with a woman named Francine Latkin. Okay, so um, again, a few we- about a, a week. I hope I get the time time correct here. Once this story dropped, it was all over the local the local papers, etc. Um, you know that the girls are missing and that they had been found. And at some point, as I recall, they mentioned the existence uh, of a watch that had been found. Now, Francine uh, was working in Atlantic City at the time. And when she had heard over the radio um, that the girls had been found and one of the girls had uh, blonde hair, you know, she said her blood ran cold um, because she had met a guy a couple months earlier. I think it was in March while she was on spring break in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So Francine um, proceeded to go to the police station and say, look, I, I know one of the girls had blonde hair. I was in, when I was in Florida, uh, I met this guy who had the blonde hair. I'm sorry, he had blonde hair. I had blonde hair, and he was obsessed over my hair. One of my friends was interested in him. We went over to this house where he lived with a bunch of guys, a group hippie house, and they had dinner, and the guy kept just fawning over her hair. Um, and she had also noticed at the time that he had a watch, and the watch was interesting because it was encased within a leather, what they call a mod band. Um, again, a, a 60s fashion staple, and those thick bands into which the, um, the watch face itself is put. So she goes to the police, and the police are asking her questions. And the police say to her, um, what, uh, you know, was there anything about him? Was he wearing any jewelry? And she said, no, 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 he wasn't wearing any jewelry. Are you sure he wasn't wearing any jewelry? And she's thinking gold chains, etc. And they said, was he wearing a watch? She said, yes, he was wearing a watch. Well, she winds up identifying the same. They show him a picture of the watch. It wasn't this watch. She says, it was that watch. And she remembered the watch specifically because it said it had the word 17 jewels on it, which was apparently some, if you understand watches, and I don't 100%, but that was sort of a, some sort of notation that was put on the watch faces for, for depth um, or chronological, so, something along those lines. But she, she matches the watcher. They go, and with this evidence, say thank you, and they go to, uh, they put out an APB on this guy. His name is Ronnie Walden. Um, this is the same guy. She said she saw the watch, wearing a watch, and she had, you know, she had the blonde hair. And she had also seen, I should add, that when he was down in Florida, she saw an unprovoked outburst of, of anger, the guy that really set her set her off I and mean, he just he flipped out for no apparent reason so when she told the police they were the information they said they were they sent out an APB for this guy and he he turns out being in Colorado but before we get to Colorado um, Francine tells me several years ago that she had talked to a detective and the detective told her you know that they had evidence and this is in fact the guy that they may have found a half a fingerprint on Susan's car that matched Ronnie Walden so they right. go out to Ronnie Walden and visit him in Colorado uh, at the Garfield County Jail, which is where he was being held on auto theft charges. Ronnie was a drifter. 
I mean, by the time Miss Francie had met him, he was all over the country, car theft, rap sheet, long, long rap sheet. No violent acts, but a rap sheet. So the Garfield County Police, in response to the APB, notified the New Jersey State Police they have him. Two detectives fly out to interview him. One of them was Detective William Hunter. The other was James Toth, who was head of the polygraph unit. So before they go out there, uh, unbeknownst to them, um, one of the jailers at the time, a guy named Les Ecker, who I interviewed at length, uh, the day before the police come, where it was made in the early morning and they came later in the day, was a real, real tight proximity. He says he's, he's driving into work, uh, and he learns that uh, one of the, apparently in jail, if someone there's, if there's an alarm, someone is trying to kill themselves, something bad is happening that the prisoners will wrap their tin cups against the jail bars. Right. And he said that was happening. And he and the other sheriff, uh, Ecker was the undersheriff. I'm forgetting off in the name of the, the, the sheriff himself. Go in and cut down Ronnie, who had attempted to kill himself by fashioning a noose made out of bed sheets. He had done it on the top. Right. And, and Mr. Ecker said, look, this guy was blue lining. He said he was about dead. When we got him down, this wasn't a joke. So they got him down, and, um, you know, the strange part is, you know, he, he, Ecker says the next thing he knows, the police come in, and, and Ronnie is there in a neck brace, proceeds to pass the polygraph test, and then, you know, is left or, or leaves, obviously, or I guess he was in custody for some other reason. He was transported off for federal charges, at least in Garfield County Jail. But it happened to be, and this is what I found stunning, the same jail cell where he had stayed and tried to hang himself was where yes. Ted Bundy had escaped um, several years later, I think in 1977, on that snowy night before going to Florida State University and killing the four co-eds. Incredible. You also mentioned that Latkin told the police at some point about uh, an incident involving a knife in the car which yeah. police so, sound interesting, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the other things she, she remembered about Ronnie was um, uh, a couple weeks earlier, I guess like a week or so after spring break, she was working in Atlantic City at a, the Social Security office on, I think, Texas and Pacific Avenues. And her friend um, you know, apparently had, had, you know, had, a, had an involvement of sorts with, with Ronnie, and, and Ronnie was coming up, and this friend had gotten Ronnie a job at a store along the boardwalk in Atlantic City called A Man and a Woman. So, um, you know, when Ronnie comes up and, and comes to the Social Security office and, and asks Francina where her friend is, and Francine comes out of the office and says, I have to show you where to park so you don't get towed. And he's driving a yellow Dodge muscle car of some sorts, and she gets in the car with him and literally uh, something happened to trigger Ronnie just as some, you know, some crazy thing triggered him in, in date in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And she says a six inch about knife when he slams the brakes flies out from underneath the seat. And she asks him about it. And he just says it's nothing or, or something along those lines, tucks it back under. So that was, that was another uh, piece of, I thought, interesting circumstantial evidence. Um, and the girls were obviously killed with, they said a paring knife or a pen knife, and the knife that she described wouldn't be inconsistent 
again, I'm not a pathologist or anything along those lines, inconsistent with, with the, the knife that was used to kill the girl. So that was another piece of incriminating uh, evidence in addition uh, to the watch um, that you know, really lends itself to, to Ronnie Walden being uh, a person of interest. What does Walden, where does Walden go, where does he move to, and what's his life like, and how does he try to reinvent himself? Okay, so, so Walden, I don't know if he really tries to invent himself, because he just, uh, after he is released, um, you know, he leaves the Garfield County Jail, he does a, uh, I guess he's transferred to Denver for a, a, a federal rap for auto, auto theft. And from there, he proceeds to go on to a life of crime, really no different than what he had done before. Now, he was, Ronnie was a grifter. Uh, I talked to several people. One guy has a great story. He was working as a real estate agent in Colorado when one day this guy appears and says he's a, a writer for the Atlanta Constitution newspaper. He's looking to buy property. You know, and the guy says, oh, well, you know, why don't – you know, why don't you come over and, and you can stay with me then again? It's the 70s. So he does, and the next day, you know, half of his apartment has been stolen, his fishing rolls and, you know, fishing poles, et cetera, and, and tells the police. And, again, they're on the lookout for, for, for Ronnie again. Um, and uh, he goes in and out of jail, in and out of jail, um, and ultimately he has a very, very dark fate uh, because – uh, in 1989, coincidentally, within a few months of, of Bundy's execution, Ronnie is in jail for murdering a man in South Carolina in, in, in a very strangely coincidental way to how he uh, uh, approached this other guy in Colorado. He was in South Carolina, so he was looking for real estate, and a broker takes him out to a secluded area where Ronnie proceeds to shoot him in the head. Um, during an alleged botch robbery, that's what he said at his trial, but he, he kills the guy point-blank range, goes to jail, um, and while in jail, uh, he's just not happy with his conditions. He winds up taking a uh, security guard in the jail hostage, becomes part of a long, drawn-on overnight hostage standoff, um, brings his brother in as brothers is what's going on, Ronnie. And Ronnie basically is having a breakdown at this point, not inconsistent with these other strange mental episodes. I should also say that Francine had indicated to me pursuant to her conversation with the state police that Ronnie um, did, a t did a stint at the uh, Milledgeville, Georgia mental hospital. It was apparently schizophrenic. So he apparently he was having an episode and winds up he had smuggled a gun into the prison and that's what he's using to hold the guard hostage and he takes the uh, the gun and winds up you know, blowing his brains out in 1989. And that's what happens to Ronnie. Now, as a result of of his death, um, and how does the investigation proceed? And uh, what's the task force that originally was 30? What's its uh, situation now? So the, the task force is now whittled down to um, uh, just a few people. Jack Kreps, a legendary figure, very dirty Harry-ish, uh, mm -hmm. just a six-foot-four-inch giant of a man. This guy is just – you talk to the, the, the police officers, the detectives that knew him, and they all just laughed because they said the guy was bigger than life. Um, you know, one guy referred to him as just being, his words were, stone cold fucking nuts. 
I mean, they say this guy was just really, he was just do whatever he could do. Um, and it was down to him and another guy, Harvey Burns, even George Dix and Detective Patterson, that they were, you know, they went on to work other cases when it went cold. So it was down to Kreps and this other guy. And, and they um, really proceeded to sort of circle back and look at what they had. Um, and they went, you know, they, they went back to Mark Thomas. The crazy thing about, about Ronnie Walden is that, you know, even when I brought, even when Francine uh, had brought up the conversation about him and what she had learned back in 1969 to the New Jersey State Police later and said, look, do you guys remember him? This Ronnie Walden, you know, the detective with whom she spoke, said they didn't have any information on the guy. And what struck me as odd is that Ronnie was dead by the time they had this conversation. And he, he apparently didn't know that. So I don't know how after Ronnie was um, freed, I guess is for lack of a better term, or no longer became a person of interest to the police after he passed the polygraph test in Colorado. Um, how they didn't know that is, is, is sort of interesting. But getting back to your point, yeah, so it became uh, these two guys who then went back to Pennsylvania and started to uh, reinvestigate um, this kid over there you know, to see what they could find basically because I don't really think they had anyone else to pursue. They did travel across the country. They went to San Francisco, you know, and, and did all sorts of investigation around the country. Any, any remote connection, you know, the police really did investigate. They just didn't have anything then. And, and that was the problem. In 1982 in October, talk about representatives of the major crime unit heard from an author or heard from pardon me from authorities in florida that a notorious um criminal a young man uh that they had wanted to question two years earlier had made a stunning revelation yeah. tell us about uh, gerald eugene stano and what is okay, that so gerald, gerald eugene stano was one of the most notorious serial killers in History um, mm-hmm. of the United States, the world. He killed about 30 women um, down there. Um, he was actually from uh, the uh, Philadelphia area. He, Although he had spent a lot of his time growing up in Florida, um, from the point he was born, he was adopted. His parents, uh, he's adopted in New York, and his, his father was a tobacco company uh, executive, moved his family to Bluebell, Pennsylvania, in Montgomery County. At the time, um, later he went to Florida and he, he killed all these women. And he started making these confessions to Detective Crow at the Daytona Beach Police Department, where he was uh, had already been arrested for murder of someone down there. And then Crow started getting all these confessions from him. And one of the things he uh, alluded to was an involvement in these killings. Um, so that that's how he came about. And it turned out well, you know, the state police did go down there. Um, I guess, to try to question him back in 1980, and he wouldn't cooperate. They then went again in 82 uh, after more of these confessions started coming out, and Detective Crow alerted them, look, you know, this guy's talking. And um, they sent two detectives down there um, to interrogate him about the Garden State Parkway murders and his admissions to them and so forth. And, uh, you know, they were never able, I was understand, to, according to uh, Detective Tom Kinzer, to ultimately clear him. But nevertheless, they weren't um, 
really persuaded by what they had learned during their trip down there um, to believe that he was responsible for the murders. But, you know, uh, that's what I find interesting, Dan, and this is one of the things that always circles back to, uh, you know, it's, it's now 2020. These took place in 1969, uh, Gerald Stano, who for a time, this is again, one of the strange coincidences lived next to Ted Bundy um, on death yeah. row. You know, why did the police or have the police again these are the these are the answers I'd like to see as a result of this book. You know, did was he one of the thousands that were interviewed back in nineteen sixty nine? We don't know that. All we know is that obviously the police know that he was here in nineteen sixty nine. Okay. But mm-hmm. you know, was he one of the kids uh investigated? Uh, and, and questioned by the state police because I think you'd have to agree that would go a long way towards uh, you know solving this thing if Stano was in fact questioned back then by state police and then you know later went on to become a serial killer he was he was living in Philadelphia at the time he was close to it he admitted to the murders and he was known to be a serial killer later I would think he is worth further investigation uh, as far as, as the dated files are concerned. Yes, certainly. You also write about the controversy with Sergeant Crow, or is what a couple detectives thought, and they really believed and even tested him uh, they, in their minds to prove that he uh, had an extraordinary bias in this questioning. Tell us about it, whether it was about the specifics of what Stano said regarding these Parkway murders. Well, apparently he. Uh... The confession you know, that, that's in my book, the, uh, the Garden State Parkway Murders, uh, was read to me over the phone by Detective Crow of what uh, Stano had told him. He was off in, in time and place um, as far as um, you know, the, it wasn't quite that specific. Um, but there was a, when, when the two detectives from New Jersey went to interview him, one of the detectives uh, told me that one of the reasons he didn't believe Stano's confession was um, he was interviewing. He just didn't know enough about what had happened. At the, I guess they had apprised him of the holdbacks. He was all over the place, and they just didn't feel that he had did it. And, and one of the detectives, again, this is his version of events, said that he had um, – you know, told uh, the detective Crow down there that, you know, one of the girls was, was wearing a blue shirt or whatever the case may be. And he said when they returned from lunch and began interviewing, um, re-interviewing Stano about the Garden State Parkway murders, he indicated that, well, uh, you know, they said, was well, she wearing a blue shirt? He said, yes. So see, he, he determined that, you know, maybe that uh, Stano was being uh, fed answers Uh, And that a lot of these confessions now Stano, who was executed, I think, in 1994 or 97, I may may have that day wrong, had always said that a lot of his confessions were, um, you know, as a result of of undue pressure by the detectives and so forth. So he had always held steadfast to the fact that he didn't kill all these girls and whatnot. But, you know, I had talked to uh, interview for the book, other detectives down there, and, and, and one guy told me, look, this guy killed every single girl that he was ever accused of killing. Um, so don't don't think for a second that um, that these confessions, whoever they were obtained, were somehow false. This guy was guilty as sin. 
what consistencies or inconsistencies in terms of the signature uh, regarding the woods and the uh, roadside abduction. Uh, tell us if there was any consistencies or inconsistencies uh, with Stano's um, MO and signature. Oh, absolutely. So, so Stano um, would typically um, select women, uh, you know, in their in their. Uh, he although he also had had prostitutes that he had had slain. Sadly, there were also a couple of young women who fit the profile of the blonde uh, hair and so forth. College girls uh, he had who were wearing blue dresses, but he would consistently um, conceal the bodies. Um, under leaves and sticks, and he would also sometimes pile the uh, clothing nearby them almost methodically. And I guess one of the reasons the police in New Jersey went down um, to visit Stano to begin with, notwithstanding his confessions, um, was because of the consistency of the crime scenes. I mean, you know that there's a whole other vein of serial killers but as far as signatures concern signatures are concerned um and the like there's always a consistency not always but most of the time a consistency to their body of work they'll do certain things like leave sticks or bury them in sticks and leaves and and everything his past murders were very consistent with how these two girls uh susan elizabeth are found in the park he would also use his car to apprehend victims, um, so there was always that that uh, possibility uh, with the circumstances of the parking murders. The girls found on the side of the road that that Stano could in fact have done these, given his history of of covering them with sticks, um, getting college age girls using a car, and of course his his proximity uh, to the crime scene. We talked about it in the introduction. Uh, the most infamous and most fascinating serial killer, Ted Bundy. Uh, he, he, as we mentioned, he had agent, uh, Jason Sells in Florida State Penitentiary with Stano. Um, tell us what Bundy had said and to who, and what specifically the, um, authorities thought that Bundy might be of interest in this, and your investigation on Bundy's whereabouts and potential as a suspect. Okay, so, so in, again, as I, as I may have mentioned earlier, in 1986, um, Bundy had uh, spoken to a gentleman who has since passed away named Art Norman. He was a psychologist for the defense team. It was, I think, Halloween 1986. Um, Bill Kelly, an Ocean City historian, had interviewed um, Art Norman um, just after Bundy was executed in 1989, asking his recollection of the 1986 um, uh, conversation with Bundy. Uh, Art Norman had withheld what Bundy um, told him because of, he didn't want to you know, violate whatever the Hippocratic Oath was at the time. But right after Bundy was executed, Art Norman comes forth and says, in 1986, Bundy told me, again, Bundy speaking in the third person, uh, out of nowhere, said well it was um you know in spring of 1969 um he mean bunny didn't have a lot to do uh he wound up going down to a place they call the jersey shore uh he wound up picking up a couple of girls on the beach and it wound up being the first time that he did it 
Um, it was something he was never able to go back from. Uh, it was just a traumatic event that shocked him for years. Now, he ne- Art Norman uh, cannot confess, but he certainly admitted uh, after this became public that Bundy never specifically stated uh, in the first person, I killed Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. But what he had indicated, and it's just so strikingly coincidental, now, when he called the Atlanta County Prosecutor's Office and the state police and told them what Bundy had said to him in 86, like, look, two girls were killed on Memorial Day weekend, okay? They were at the Jersey Shore. Bundy is here saying, I was, you know, he went to Ocean City. It was late spring, um, and all these factors were, were checked off. Bundy was, in fact, staying with an aunt in the spring of 1969. He was enrolled at the School of, of General Studies at Temple University. He was living with an aunt. So all these things added up. I also found out that Bundy had a far greater history, and this has never been reported before, to Ocean City, New Jersey. Um, he had, according to the relative, relative excuse me, that I interviewed at length, who was the same person with whom he lived in Lafayette Hill, Pennsylvania, 1969, while attending Temple University, that he had made several trips with his family to Ocean City, New Jersey. In fact, uh, there was a family member who had a house down there. So he had, to the extent that serial killers then um, strike in a familiar area with which they are comfortable, he certainly had ample opportunity over the years, if he in fact did this, to scope out where he would kill these two women. Was there, again, an MO signature consistencies with this crime and Bundy's crimes? Not overly. Um, Bundy would typically, uh, his whole MO was he would uh, find a woman, and as certainly you know, this has been um, you know portrayed again and again. He would use the, uh, the or the fake arm cast. He, he would portray himself as a needy person in need of help, uh, and distress. You know, walk to a car. He'd want to be seen by someone as needing help. They'd come, and then he would typically club them over the head, put them in the car, um, take them, and then murder them, decapitate them, et cetera, et cetera. So the MOs did not match up. However, um, deliberate stranger Arthur, Mr. Arthur, excuse me, Mr. Larson, believed, and this is what he said to Larry Kelly in 1993, that this would have been Ted Bundy's, he believed, um, as one of Bundy's first biographers, the Jersey Shore murders were Bundy's first unplanned crime, um, and that he sharpened his MOs later. But he believed that the, the Garden State Park where murders were, in fact, um, you know, something that Bundy, in fact, had done. That was his opinion. He passed away a few years ago. I was never able to interview him, but he last went on record believing that Bundy had killed Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry on Memorial Day, 1969. Interesting, it went against his M.O. later, unless he totally revised it in terms of attacking two women at one time. Let's get to, uh, as I mentioned before to you, I looked at this uh, Walden character, and uh, the interesting thing that, that we maybe glossed over a little bit was that there was a partial print on the vehicle, and that was a match, but not enough to to say that that was a conclusive thing in court, but a partial print match is very important. He, you, you say that some people would and would look at this as, well, he was a thief, then why wouldn't he steal? How about the idea that this could have been a confrontation 
over the vehicle itself, just very much or similar to the other struggle he had, which led to murder. Well, it could have been. But here's the for, for, again, this lends itself to, to the fascination. Each time you think you have a particular suspect, you have the circumstantial evidence. Sure. You've got you've got the Ronnie Walden, you've got the Bundy admitting, and he was at the beach. You've got Gerald Stano, okay, admitting to the murders. You always have the, these strange things that that go against it. And what happened with Ronnie was um, one of the things that that, that Francine had told me. Um, and then she also told the police, and this also made the press in 1969, is one, in addition to him being down there and she telling the police he had a watch, he was, he had left um, Atlantic City, according to Francine, immediately after the murders had occurred. And that's one of the things, in addition to the watch, that had prompted her to notify the police. He had, mm-hmm. um, he had left immediately thereafter. He was driving... Uh, they said when they found him in Colorado with a car that he had stolen from New Jersey, which was, I think, a yellow Dodge with a trailer with a motorcycle attached to it. Um, so if he had a car, Dan, again, you start to think, what would he be doing? He wouldn't be hitchhiking if he had left town in a car that he had stolen. And why would he be pulling two girls over to the side of the road? And if he was going, doing that to rob him, why wouldn't he have robbed them after killing them? If this was consistent with his murder of a guy named George Wells in South Carolina in 1984, why wouldn't he have robbed Susan and Elizabeth? And when you think of these girls being stabbed to death, one of them, you know, stripped, these things are consistent. And this is what I've attempted to do in the book as well with, with the makings of a serial killer. So my, uh, you know, although Ronnie is a very viable suspect, again, you have to ask yourself, would he have, is his MO um, consistent with how these girls were found? And given the fact that he had left town allegedly in a trailer, um, you know, with a motorcycle attached. He had stolen from the owner of a man and a woman, by the way, um, right as he left town after the murders. That, that, those things don't match, but everything else does. So I really think it comes back to Ronnie Walden needing to be further investigated at this point, at least his file, um, by the state police. How significant is that partial print match, though? I know. Regardless I know. of I admissibility. Well, you know, when, again, uh, Francine had sent me her notes that she kept for 1969, her handwritten notes. Okay, and, and the, uh, the guy had told her that she was never able to specifically identify the officer with whom she spoke with everything else she had written down and I saw. So they had half a print, and they said that they were, quote, 99 and I think one quarter percent certain that he was the guy and she remembered that phrase because that's what ivory soap used to use as their jingle that or were 99 and, and everyone percent pure. So that's, you know, that's how she remembered as far as the print. I don't know because again, when she told uh, again, this detective with the state police years later, in, in like 2003, four, five, six, something along with this before she had sent her notes to me in my office um, she had talked to the guy, and the guy said, "We don't. I don't even, you know." Apparently, said, "I don't know anything about this Ronnie Walden or anything along those lines." So I don't know if he was, you know, what the extent of his with the with their uh, state police file, the investigative reports. Was he just not considered a person of interest? 
after he had uh, passed the lie detector test? I just don't know. But, I, again, to this day, given the fact that we have the watch identified as belonging to him, we have his past mental health, we have the fact that he murdered someone in South Carolina, all these things, you know, we have the, the, the alleged fingerprints, we've got the 99.5%. So many of these things add up to being Ronnie Walden being a viable person of interest. Fascinating. Did did Walden fit the description from Albert Hickey in any way? The five foot seven to five foot nine. No, no. Ronnie was a. It's interesting. He was a six foot two inch former high school athlete. I interviewed several people from his hometown of Cairo, Georgia, which also produced Jackie Robinson. A number of people. Quiet Southern Gothic type place and they all you know all the women i spoke with said he was you know a dangerous guy there was always something about him women i think are born with this intuitive sense of of, of evil in people and they all said there was something sure. about him and you know um etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know they said that the one of the reasons he went down the wrong path is because he always wanted a scholarship to florida state university to play football um, right. And never got it. He got a you know financial grant and aid. And um, one of his former girlfriends told me that she believed him not getting that scholarship. And he had also, uh, I think he had had a kid that uh, at 18 that, that died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. So a couple of these factors right. sent him down the wrong the wrong path. But physically, the answer to your question is no. He was not seen wearing a turtleneck. Um, Again, it wasn't, but Francine was the only one who, and she had done it after the fact. Um, you know, so Ronnie's sort of name arose after the Albert Hickey thing was, was mentioned, but no, he was never seen wearing a yellow turtleneck. And physically, the guy that was seen at the uh, the circle, uh, Summers Point Traffic Circle, was like five nine, shaggy hair, dark hair, not not tall, six two, and and blonde like Ronnie was. There was uh, uh, a legion of detectives that retired, and other took up t- other detectives took up the mantle in this investigation. And you write of some detectives uh, wedded to their earlier decision- decisions as to who killed Elizabeth and Susan that day, that weekend. Yeah, um, the detectives are pretty much uh, all over the place. They were never uh, never really able to to decide who did it. I don't know. There was ever any collective uh, consensus on who they believe did it. And that's the frustrating part. You you talk to these gentlemen, at least the retired ones, the present day ones weren't very disclosive for for legal concerns. Um, You talk to the other ones and you ask them, well, who do you think did it? Well, you know, it could have been Bundy. They're very, you can just hear the anguish in their voice as though they are haunted because this is the one that got away. And in fact, one of the uh, state police uh, detectives that I interviewed, he had a very interesting quote. He said, you know, so many of these guys would have given a piece of their pension, you know, to find out who did this. And if you know anything about state police pensions in New Jersey, they're they're pretty substantial. So um, it's fascinating how, and and even when you talk, uh, you know, Detective Dix, who I interviewed at length, uh, Detective Kreps before he passed away. Uh, these guys were so you could just they just resonated sincerity and how much they wanted to see this thing get resolved. But it all came back to at least they said the three days. And one guy said to me, if we could just have those three days back again, the three days being between the time the girls were found and, and the car was reported. So very very. very it's, 
it's very tragic too that I I, I think anyway at, coming from reading this that the scapegoating of uh, detective or patrolman um, steer. Just tell us briefly about that. Well, yeah, he was uh, he was brought up on. I guess the state police police have a uh, sort of military esque hierarchical structure as far as disciplining, and in, in addition to you know anointing people captain, lieutenant, what have you. So he was court martialed, brought in court martial proceeding. Ironically, or coincidentally, his his attorney was Patrick McGann. Uh, Patrick McGann is, I believe, the uncle of uh, former former excuse me White House counsel um, Don McGann which is pretty interesting connection there. But yeah, yeah Patrick McGann um, got uh, basically, uh, you know, tried the case and Stir, I think Stir was a state scapegoat because they wanted to have someone to, to pin this on. And he was the guy, but ultimately his rank was restored and he did have his name, his good name brought back, um, you know, years later after this all all went out, he got a promotion. He I never had a chance to interview him. He did he did pass away a, a long time ago, but it's a shame that this happened to him because my point about Luster has always been this. And let's say he pulls over down to the side of the road, down to the side of the road, and he sees the car. You know, pretty much according to the coroner's report, the girls were dead by this time. So let's say he goes in and he, and he finds the body, rather bodies, you know, rather than the highway worker. It wouldn't have brought them back. It still happened. The people were long, you know, whoever did this had long since, you know, disappeared. So I always felt that Stir was a little bit unfairly blamed um, in it. But again, it, it, it is what it is. It was an unfortunate mark um, a blemish if you will on, on his career it just seemed very interesting the we always talk about the pressure for these police to be able to solve this but there really is a pressure and these guys take it upon their shoulders like you say these guys can't let these cases go it stays with them and so it's 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 tragic to see uh, a patrolman that looks like he was you know an innocent mistake or oversight, whatever you want to call it, but certainly not negligence, and certainly wouldn't have uh, changed the outcome of the investigation, seemingly. So it is uh, just the the overall extent of the brunt that the police take, and prosecutors, but and but especially detectives in these cold case mysteries like this. And, and you know, another thing is, I can identify with the with the obsession. Um, you know, I've been. Mm-hmm. I, although I've been extensively sure. researching the case in the past 10 years, which comprises the Garden State Parkway murders, don't forget, I have been interested in the case since about you know 2000 as far as really doing a deep dive into it. You know, The first book took several years to write, and that was The Arges of Infamy. So I identify there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about this case and what happened. I mean, think so I can – and I'm not a detective, but I can completely – identify with with the passion they have and that 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 obsession to see some sort of closure uh with this and that's just what we don't have at this point you know as i said i keep returning to uh, you know we really need to do a re-review of the case given uh, what i've disclosed in this book you know that many of the present day detectives that i spoke with i should say present day uh the de- the detectives that i've spoken with that worked on the case, you know, when I begin to tell them what I know about it, you know, in a preface to my attempt to interview them, they say, wow, you know more about the case than I do. So, 
you know, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I can definitely identify. I say that um, just really to to illuminate the point that I can I can identify with the passion and and the obsession that people like you know Jack Kreps and, and George Dix and these guys had with the case, and it really haunted them for the rest of their lives. Yes, absolutely. I want to thank you, Christian, for coming on and talking about the Garden State Parkway Murders, a cold case mystery. This is a Wild Blue Press release. Of, if people want to find out more information or take a look at uh, do you have a Facebook page website tell us how they might take a look at this uh, work. It, it, they can order the book on Amazon I believe that it's also for sale at Sunrose Words and Music on Asbury Avenue in Ocean City um, again on the Wild Blue Press site wildbluepress.com you can find my biography uh, where I go into a little bit of the book how I, I came to um, get interested in this case so fervently um, you could order it from there and learn more about it. I also blogged about a little bit about Ted Bundy as well, some some interesting and heretofore unknown facts about him, which I think were sort of um, you know opposite of some of the things that are that are commonly understood about him. Um, so you could go to Wild Blue Press website, my biography on there, order through there, or Amazon, or at Sunrose Words and Music. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Christian Barth, for the Garden State Parkway Murders. You have a great night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night.